0: Take your Bible, and if you have one, if you don't have one, we have them in the back. And we'd love to get one in your hands. Just give us a little notification. We'll get that for you. But take that Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're in a series named Called Out, and this series is named Called Out because the Greek word for church is ekklesia, which literally means a called out gathering of people. And as we're working through this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, Paul is actually reminding them of who they are in Jesus Christ. He's pointing them to their identity as a Christian, as a member of the church. And along the way, he's also calling out some particular failures that this church has failed to really establish in their life, to make Jesus the foundation of their life. This whole book, and especially this chapter and parts of this chapter, are actually really hard to understand if you don't have a context For who's Paul talking to? Who is this church at Corinth, okay? Well, Corinth is a Greek city. It was a port city, a very wealthy port city, lots of money flowing through this place. It was also similar to Las Vegas and very decadent in immorality and uh, honestly a hub for human trafficking. And as Paul is talking to these Christians who were radically changed by the the blood of Jesus Christ and transformed to live— Out of darkness into a new marvelous light in Christ. Every single chapter he's telling them, this is who you are. This is your identity in Christ. Consider your calling. Don't live the way you used to live. And today he's going to point to a specific sin issue. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that up front because this whole verse is really like the keyhole to unlock Paul's main point in this passage. So it's 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7 says this, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So what Paul is calling out here in the Corinthians is pride, but we're also going to see it's this idea of wealth and prosperity that elevates success over faithfulness to Jesus Christ. No one really wants to hear a sermon on pride, all right? <laughs> that's not one thing that we like to hear talk about. Um, oh, wow, pride. I, I, don't, I mean, who wants to hear that, really? But that's what we have in 1 Corinthians 4, so that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to read about today. So look with me in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. And as we open up this passage, you're going to see three active postures that you and I can take to defeat pride, boasting in what you have received. Not boasting in yourself, boasting in the giver of those gifts and boasting in what he has given you. So verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light how things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. In verses 1 and 2, Paul is talking about himself, and he's talking about Apollos. If you're here with us last week in chapter 3, we were looking at a health, one of the things we were looking at was a healthy view of leadership. And in chapter 3, verse 5, he was saying that leaders are servants. Leaders are servants. So important that you understand that, you don't get off track on that. But actually, the word servants in chapter 3 was the Greek word diakonos which is a different word than the word servants that he's using here in chapter 4, because in chapter 4, he's using the Greek word hyperides. Okay, the difference between these two words, 3-5, diakonos, it's more of a mutual, I'm going to serve the people around me, my, my equals and my peers, I'm going to look out for them, and i care for them, whereas hyperides, this is a literal under rower of a ship. Corinth also, being a port city, had a lot of ships. They were go back a little ways. Their military was very, very good nautical military, okay? And they had these underrowers in three rows deep. So they would have been very familiar with this Greek term hyperides, which literally means I'm putting myself in a position underneath the authority. I have this posture of looking up to the supreme authority. Like I'm an under rower down here for Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's talking about as a leader, now, you may be thinking, well, David, I mean, I'm not a pastor. I'm not Paul. I'm not a Paulist. I never desire to be a pastor. So what, is this? what does this really have to do with me? Well, verse 5, he makes it very clear to point it back to the church. You see verse 5? Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. This is where we get Paul's first point. Paul's first applicational point is to live for Christ, not for people. So that's our first point today. Live for Christ, not for people. Look at verse 3 again. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He doesn't give that much stock into what people think or say about him. It's pretty radical. That's not that easy to do. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. It is the Lord who judges. Question for you here, based off of the verses we just read. Who can judge a heart and read someone's motives? You can say this out loud. Who can do that? You and I or God? Who judges the heart? God judges the heart. So do we have the ability to judge people's motives? No, we do not. We don't have that ability at all. We want to do that. We fall into that trap all the time, but only God can read the heart. Only God can discern the thoughts and the intentions, the decisions that people make, why they make those decisions. God knows if they built it on the foundation of Jesus Christ. You and I really don't know that. So what this means for us, what we can take away from this is, number one, don't judge people. And number two, don't don't live for the judgment of people. Don't live your life based off of what they think and what they say or how they're going to take this. We can't live our life and make our decisions based off of that. Pride looks down at your neighbor and judges what they're doing. Does it measure up? Does it measure up to what I would do? But you show me someone who is judging and every single time, as you see in this passage, you have someone who is prideful. Don't judge because you can't read the heart. And ultimately, you don't know everything going on in that person's life. We just don't. I meet people all the time, and I sometimes I'm super impressed with them. Sometimes I'm not that impressed with them. But there's some people I meet them, and I'm like, wow, that person's got it going on. They're sharp. They're intelligent. They're just, look at them, go. And then you get to know them a little bit, see them behind the curtain, their hair's that down a little bit, and you're like, oh, that's not cool. That's not good. Uh, and they disappoint, right? And on the flip side, you meet somebody. I, w- I was a youth pastor for six years. I would meet guys there are in my youth group, peach fuzz. They're shy. They're quiet. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be work for this relationship. And then before you know it, I'm blown away with their heart for God and their passion for God. I underestimated them. We cannot judge the heart. We do not know what's going on in somebody's life. Only God knows that. So we get, can't get out of place. Because here's the thing. If we judge and we look at other people and we start casting these opinions and classifying people, you cannot be unscathed by pride if you do that for very long. You just can't. Pride comes with that territory. It's so freeing to get past the drudgery of trying to measure up and make everyone happy. To not just spend all your energy on pleasing people, but to spend your energy on loving God and serving Christ. We have a couple runners in our church, and I never had the opportunity to run cross-country in high school. My my high school never provided it. I would have probably loved it. Uh, Dan Steadman, I don't actually see Dan today. He's a big cross-country runner. Uh, Michael Thomas in our church is also a big cross-country runner. He's sick too. So here, all my runners are not not with me this morning. But I've talked to them, and they've talked to me about running cross-country. It's a sport where you have to keep focused on you and the clock. Are you guys with me on this? Any, any other runners in here besides Dan and, and Michael? Yeah, okay, good, good. You have to focus on the clock, what, how you're doing. If you're focusing on what everybody else is doing around me, I'm turning my head, I'm making sure I cut somebody off, you're going to expend unnecessary energy in that race. And as a matter of fact, when you have these big cross-country meets, and there's like you know six runners per team, per school, and they know that our last runner is just gonna get thrown out anyway, his time won't even matter. What they will do, they'll employ a tactic called the rabbit. And the rabbit is like the worst runner who's not very fast and they at the beginning of the race are gonna run at a pace that's pretty much unsustainable. And they do that solely to play mind games with all the other runners to get the other runners off track of what they're supposed to be doing. You see how when we're living our life for Jesus Christ, if we're focused on what everybody else is doing, what everybody else thinks or says about us, it can get our focus off of Jesus Christ and our number one goal. It's very important that we don't do that. Now, of course, we all care about what other people think. I'm not trying to ask you to do the impossible. Um, There's some people who literally don't care. They're very disagreeable. I was listening to a podcast on this the other day. There's guys out there on Wall Street called quants, and they just care about numbers and making money, and they just don't like people, so they could care less. They couldn't care less if they offended somebody. But most people aren't like that, right? Are you with me? Most people, like, we want to fit in. We want people to like us. And I think the root of that, it goes back to we just want to be loved, right? We feel like if we're not fitting in, if people don't like us, we're not going to be loved. And the way to battle this in your mind is to remember that God already loves you. Nobody loves you more than God. So you don't have to worry ever about pleasing him. He loves you. And if you're his child, he chose you and he saved you. So don't worry about what other people think. Love God more because he already loves you. But hopefully you can see how pride enables us to judge others. And prideful people are usually fearful people. They're usually concerned about what other people think of them. The second posture that you can take to defeat pride here in this verse, in this chapter, number two is faithfully adhere to God's word. Look at verse six. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. What is the most common pitfall for a sincere follower of Jesus? Think about that for a second. And then think about what verse 6 just said. So often, devout Sincere followers of Jesus can take scripture and they can add to what has already been written. How do we do this? We do this by taking a personal conviction and elevating it to a place where it doesn't belong and imposing it on other people. Imposing it as a standard upon other people. We cannot go beyond what is written. That's not our job. And what is the end result? It puffs you up. You play this comparison game, and you look at yourself like, "Well, they're not doing it the way I would do it." Can you believe she wore that? How dare she dress that way? Well, whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa. Let's let's wait a minute. Is this clearly defined in Scripture? Is this a clear principle in Scripture, or is this something that the Spirit led you to? Is this a, is this a gray area where you need you have a you have room that the Holy Spirit allows to convict and guide and direct individual people? For sure. Immodesty is a real thing. I mean, the Bible acknowledges dressing in, in, a, in a way that attracts the body. And, and that can be true for women and for men. That's a, that's a biblical principle. But we can't take something and then elevate it beyond what is written. If we start taking it too far, if we start taking these convictions and making them standards for others, what we have done is we've created a legalistic principle that we lord over other people that does not ever end well. This is something that parents do. This is when that uh, we look at, wow, I wouldn't raise my kid that way. This is something that we look at our our coworkers, our friends, wow, I wouldn't spend my money that way. And we take biblical principles and we add to it. It's a very, very dangerous place to be in. We've all been there, right? I mean... I have I have three kids now, and before I had kids, I legitimately thought that yeah, as a family, we'll probably watch a movie, maybe maybe twice a month. That's what we'll do. I don't want to have too much TV in my home, and uh, and then you have kids, and we watch like a lot of movies. Okay, <laughs> uh, mommy and daddy need a break sometimes. I literally thought like we would, after supper, we would open up a novel. I would read a chapter every night. Let me be honest. I don't think that's ever going to be a reality in our house. I just don't. Maybe you're out there and you only give your kids one hour of screen time a week and you're judging me right now. <laughs> just kidding. That's okay. Maybe we can talk after the service and we can figure this out together. But here's the thing. We, we can't judge others. We can't go beyond what is written. There's a lot of areas of life where we can think that person should do it the way I'm doing it. It's not our job. It's not our position to look at others and tell them what they need to do. Allow the Holy Spirit to work, to lead, guide, and direct in their lives. The more you judge others and the more you elevate other things that are just gray areas in Scripture to a place that they're never even written The more you do that, you get closer to taking it to this next scary level of creating an external legalistic principle that in your mind elevates you over someone else. And that's what this verse is saying in verse 6. Now look at verse 7. Stick with Paul here as he continues to build on this. This is where we go back to verse 7, the verse we already touched on earlier. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Paul's packing a little punch with this rhetorical question, isn't he? Can you see how he's starting to get a little sassy? I told you some hard things to understand are coming, and this is the beginning of that. But it's what Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, everything good about you is a gift from God. It's really that simple. Don't boast in yourself. God is the giver of every good gifts. Boast in what you have received. The rhetorical question is, what do you have that you haven't received? Nothing. Everything that is good about me, everything that is good about you, your mental capacities, your work ethic, your ability to read people, your strong legs, I don't care what it is, your faith, you name it, everything you have that is good is a gift from God. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. Thank God for that. Praise the Lord. He's given it to us. So we don't have anything to really boast about. Just boast in what you've received. Boast in those amazing gifts that God has given us because everything is a gift. Everything. Don't pretend that it's not a gift. Don't pretend that you didn't receive it by the grace of God. It's by his grace. Now, in verse 8, Paul is actually really going to get fired up here. And as I said, we saw him getting feisty. You're not going to understand these next few verses if you don't get that Paul loves the Corinthian church, and he's about to get really sarcastic with the Corinthian church. So let's read these verses in that mindset, okay? Verse eight, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without, without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Do you see Paul's passion here? As the Corinthians have pride, and the Corinthians have elevated this wealthy lifestyle that they enjoy... To say, well, Paul doesn't have that. Paul's not, he Paul's not driving the BMW Zagato Coupe. Paul doesn't have the Banana Republic sport jacket. So I'm going to look down on Paul. That's what was going on between the lines with the Corinthians and the relationship with Paul. Pride creates a false sense of reality that, that many of these Corinthians had. They were versed in philosophy. They were very intelligent. And they didn't really like everything Paul had to say. It's not wrong to have money. Let me be be very clear about that. Of course not. Uh, You see all kinds of rich people in the Bible who God blesses and he gives them money. I am not against being successful and having wealth. It depends on what you're going to do with that wealth, And it depends on how you look at other people based on the wealth that you have. Okay? I hope you have money. But I don't want you to stop it. I don't want that to stop you from being a fool for Christ. We're going to read the next few verses here. And being a fool for Christ just means the world should look at you and say, wow, I can't believe they gave that away. What are they doing with their money? I would go on a vacation. Look what they did with that. But the next few verses, look at this. Let's continue on. Verse 11. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Does that sound a little scary? Does that sound a little intimidating and like not that fun? (laughs) It really, it, it does. I mean, this is something that we as the American church don't talk about a lot. Remember I told you that the church at Corinth, Has a lot of stark similarities that are just absolutely startling with the American 21st century church. Are we not well fed? Do we not have a lot going for us? And compared to the world around us, pretty much we're all rich. I think everybody in here, no matter what you make right now, compared to the world, you are rich. The world at large, you are rich. We can easily get to this posture of looking down at others and looking at deficiencies in others and comparing ourselves with others as being unwise in that sense. And we can think, hey, if they don't have that, if they're not measuring up, then what's their problem? And that's what Paul is calling out here. This is the third point he says. Suffer with a hope for the future. Suffer with a hope for the future. Verses 11 through 13 are all one sentence. And this is how Paul contrasts his relationship with Jesus. To this posture that the Corinthians are taking of "I have it, I've arrived, look at me," he's in in direct contrast. Look at verse—I read verse eleven. I've read read verse eleven through thirteen already. But there's a theological concept called "already and not yet," already but not yet. And I don't want to take too much time and go into a deep dive on this. There's novels that have been written on this, but this theological concept just says, "Hey, look." There are certain truths about you that are true, that are established already. You are glorified in Romans 8. You are in Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms in Ephesians 2.6. But life doesn't always feel that way, right? We don't always feel glorified. Our surroundings don't always feel like the heavenly realms, that's for sure. Okay? Uh, In Ephesians 2.8.9, it talks about this, excuse me, um, Hebrews two. 8 and 9 talks about this. And I want to just read that briefly for you um, to give you a sense of what I'm talking about. But in Hebrews 2, if you fa- want to follow along with me, that's great. If not, here it is. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything under subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At the present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death, so that the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That passage is clearly talking about this already-not-yet concept. Already Jesus is glorified. Already he is king. But not yet are we experiencing all of that, right? We're not yet all under subjection to Him. This whole world is not under subjection to King Jesus. So Jesus is King, but the kingdom hasn't been completely established and completely fulfilled yet. We are living in this gap between the promise and the fulfillment of that promise. Does that make sense to you? Already? Not yet. So in this present life, back to 1 Corinthians 4, yes, there's going to be suffering. When you follow Jesus, some people will revile revile you. You won't always be the most popular person. As a matter of fact, Paul told Timothy later on that if you live godly for Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. That's going to happen in this life because this life is dark. This life has the curse of sin still upon it. Living for Christ will not make you the most popular person. Living for Jesus and loving him doesn't save you from abuse. Serving God doesn't make you immune from sickness. Life on this side of eternity is dark. And the Bible never paints this life in hot pink. We live in a world of sin. We are tempted by sin. We struggle with a battle. Even though Jesus has already won the victory... We're still in this battle between the lust of the flesh and our spirit that indwells every believer. In this side of eternity, there are vultures encircling us to tempt us. There's people around us that are are against us. But there's always hope in Jesus. That's why you can suffer with a hope for the future. I don't know if any of you know this, but Paul McCartney wrote a song entitled Hope for the Future. Not very many people have heard of this song because it was a song written for a video game. And uh, it was basically the end credits role of a piece of sci-fi, so it's not that well-known of a song. And as, as you could expect, Paul, Paul McCartney not being a very solid theologian, uh, this, this piece of sci-fi is very humanistic and pretty vague, okay? But there is a line in this song, That says, hope shines brightest in the darkness when nothing's ever seen. Hope shines brightest in the darkness when nothing's ever seen. And you know what? That's a true statement. (laughs) It's a cool song. The song isn't really biblically correct. But you pull that one statement out, I like that statement. Because think about this. In this dark world where we're living, where we're surrounded by people that don't understand us, they don't understand the mysteries of the gospel, we're stewards of that. We, we have the Holy Spirit who's revealed it to us, but people don't understand that and they, they don't always like us. They're not always for us. And it's hard. Sometimes we, don't, we want people to like us. We, we want to fit in. We want other people to be like us sometimes so we judge others. There's all these things going around around us where pride settles in. And we have to remember That coming to Jesus doesn't mean everything's going to be great. The prosperity gospel is a twisted lie of truth that says, hey, you follow Jesus and everything is going to be great. The Corinthians kind of had this mindset. But it's not true. Everything is not going to be great. There's going to be suffering. Everything is not right. Not yet is everything right. Because there is going to come a day when everything will be made new and all the wrongs will be righted by Jesus Christ. Revelation 21 talks about this. Revelation 21, I want to read for you just a couple verses there at the very end of the scripture, very end of the Bible. Revelation 21, verse, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have been passed away. There's there's the new heaven and the new earth that God is going to create, and he is going to restore all things one day already accomplished the victory's already won but it's not yet here for us and in this present we are going to suffer but we have to suffer with a hope for the future in this present enjoy all the good gifts that god gives you boast in what you have received don't boast in yourself boast in the giver of those good gifts at the same time expect pain suffering's gonna be here quote another bad theologian, Bruce Wayne? The night is darkest just before the dawn. Okay? Jesus is coming. There is hope in Jesus Christ. When you are in troubled waters, when those storms are overhead, find your hope in Jesus Christ. Verse 14, back in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed I know we're all prideful, but let's not park there. I'm saying this to admonish you as my beloved children. Go down to verse verse 19. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit? is what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians is look. Enough of this talk. Enough of this prideful talk. Let's boast in the one who has given us everything. The kingdom of God is about power. It's not about talk. It's about the power that he gives you. It's about the power and the the way he enables you to go forward on his mission. That's what we should be talking about. And he's giving the Corinthians an option. He says, hey, look, I could come to you with a spirit and a rod of correction, with the authority of God's word, and we could talk about the way you're way off. I I don't want to do that. Of course, he would still do that in love with the authority of Scripture. But rather, I would like to come with a spirit of gentleness and meekness, and we could talk about your repentance and your restoration. Wouldn't that be a much nicer conversation? A much gentler conversation? He leaves this to the whole church. He's not just calling out individuals. He's talking to the entire church. He's putting that on the whole church. It's all of our responsibility to not live with an attitude of, look at who we are, look at everybody else, but to not judge, to remember that he is the giver of all good gifts, to boast in what we've received and not in ourselves. So cut pride down at the. Paul's telling us to do right here. Cut pride down at the knees and do that by getting on your knees. Getting on your knees and praying to God and saying, God, help me. Let's talk to him right now. Father in heaven, all of us are sitting here. We all, to some degree, struggle with pride. We want to confess that before you. We want to give that over to you. God, may we not live for what other people think, but live for you and love you more and live for what you think and what you've told us to do. May we faithfully adhere to scripture and not puff ourselves up by adding things and making, and making ourselves look good by what we do and what we don't do. And God, may we suffer in the present with a hope for the future for what you're going to do. for us. May we never boast in ourselves, but only boast in you. And may we boast in the gifts that we have received from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.